Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish egotistical or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart and this show is most definitely all about the heart. And with me now in the studio is Dr. Helen E. Fisher. She is a biological anthropologist and the chief scientific advisor at Match.com. She's a research professor in the Department of Anthropology at Rutgers University. She has written five books on the evolution of the future of human sexuality, monogamy, adultery, and divorce, as well as gender differences in the brain and the chemistry of romantic love. And most recently, she is researching human personality types and why we fall in love with this one versus that one. Hi, Helen. Thanks for joining us. I'm delighted to be with you, Lisa. Thank you. Oh, my gosh. I am so excited. I don't know where to start, but let's start <laughs> about... Why love is like a drug in the brain? You know, why does the brain light up with love mm -hmm. like when it's on cocaine? Great. Well, first of all, let me just say what kind of love we're talking about. I think we've evolved three distinctly different brain systems for mating and reproduction. One is the sex drive. Second one is feelings of intense romantic love. And the third is feelings of deep attachment. And I think what you're talking about is romantic love, that elation, giddiness, euphoria, focus, energy, motivation to win this person. And uh, um, this is the brain system that I and my colleagues have been studying for many years now. And we've put actually over 100 people into a brain scanner. But the first group of people we put into the brain scanner were people who had just fallen happily and madly in love. And indeed, we found activity in the entire uh, pathways of the dopamine system. And many of this, these pathways are the same pathways that get um, um, activated when you take cocaine. In fact, um, we, we, I was really looking, I, I've always thought that romantic love was an addiction, a perfectly wonderful addiction when it's going well and a perfectly horrible addiction when it's going poorly. And indeed, in all of our brain scanning experiments, we've found activity in certain brain regions 
that become active in all of the addictions, particularly cocaine. So it is like cocaine in that you get that elation, the energy, the focus, the motivation. It's not like cocaine in that the following morning you wake up and you're no longer high on the cocaine. And when you're madly in love, it can last for months or years. And what is that madly in love stage in terms of how long does it last? You mentioned from months to years. Can it last really for years? Well, we wondered whether it could or couldn't, and uh, because Americans think that it uh, it doesn't last, it's only a few months. And um, I do a national study with uh, Match.com. We don't poll the Match members; we poll the American population. So it's uh, based on the U.S. Census. And I asked that very very question, and a large number of people said that it lasted for them between two and five years. And then um, we, uh, my brain scanning partners, and I put. Uh, uh, people in their 50s and 60s who were married an average of 21 years, and we put them in the brain scanner, and they all maintained that they were madly in love, still ma- not just loving, but madly in love with their long-term mar- married uh, partner. And sure enough, we found activities in the same dopamine system. What was the difference between those people who had just fallen happily in love and those who are still in love very long-term was that when you're when you've just fallen happily in love, we also find activity in a brain region linked with anxiety. You know, when, you're, when you've just fallen in love, you're anxious. I mean, what did I say that for? Am I too fat? How come he didn't do this? I should have worn that. You're, you're anxious. But when you're married to somebody and you've had children, that anxiety goes away. And what, is, what, is, what, what it replaces itself with is um, feelings of calm and emotional security and actually pain relief. Uh, brain regions linked with pain relief and calm become active instead. So in long-term love, you still you still want to make love to the person. You still want to have them to come home for dinner. You still laugh together. You still want to go on vacations together. You still have that real focus and energy for that person. But that early stage intense obsession seems to be gone. Um, interesting. Now, going back to the, the, the long-term in-loveness, Let's say, you know, many of us are in long-term relationships, myself included, and I observe in myself and with my partner that we can go for a period of time where we're perfectly well-mated and happy, but then suddenly there'll be, there will be a spike once again in that in loveness. What, what is the correlation of that? What, what trips that? What makes that happen? Lisa, that is the perfect explanation. I have not really heard anybody say that the way you just said it. I try to say it to people, but what's going on is when you're uh, so it's it's an astute observation, and um, what is what, what I think is going on in the brain, and and we don't know, but as an educated guess, that attachment system goes on even when you hate the person. You can feel deeply attached to the person, even though they're annoyed they didn't pick up their socks, they forgot the call, they were too late for dinner, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. You still feel the attachment to them, so that daily sense of calm and. And, and, and emotional security and fondness for the person simply remains long-term if you pick the right person. And then there are these periods, these spikes of intense romantic love. Suddenly they look so handsome as they're walking down the street or so pretty or they say something so funny. What's probably going on in the brain is there's a spike in the dopamine system that uh, the attachment system linked with oxytocin and vasopressin in, in people continues to go on, but at these moments there's a spike in the dopamine system and you get that rush again, that early stage feeling of intense romantic love. I think this is why people like vacations so much because 
On a vacation, you're constantly doing novel things, and novelty drives up the dopamine system in the brain and can give you, once again, those old-time, that old-time rush, really, of intense romantic love. So it sounds like you're in a good partnership. Oh, well, I think so. You know, and I thought here it was, I thought it was perimenopause. You know, I thought it was all oh. me and the hormones going wacky. But this, this is a perfect explanation. It does make sense. Yeah, well, the other thing is, in a, I don't know what percentage of women, but quite a high percent, maybe as much as 30% of women, have a higher sex drive um, after menopause because as estrogen levels really plummet, testosterone levels go down too, but they don't go down anywhere near as much. And so the ratio between estrogen and testosterone begins to change um, with menopause. And after menopause, a certain number of women actually have a higher sex drive uh, uh, because of that changing ratio of testosterone to estrogen. You know, middle-aged women also, um, they become more assertive. uh, uh, They begin to put more weight on around the waist the way men do. They show many signs of testosterone. And one of the perks... (laughs) could be a higher sex drive to go along with your feelings of intense romantic love and feelings of deep attachment. I say amen to all of that, except the belly fat. (laughs) That is really annoying, but that's another conversation. (laughs) Let's talk about the difference between men and women and, and what you've observed on these brain scans, because men, I think, get a bad rap, don't they? They get a really bad rap. I, well, at least there's two of us on this planet who are trying to say that. I, I don't know why people don't listen to this. They're convinced, convinced that women are more romantic than, than men are. We put um, a lot of men into the brain scanner, and other people have too, uh, in different experiments. And we did not find any difference at all in those basic brain systems that are linked with feelings of romantic love. Uh, and, in fact, when I do my national studies with Match.com, the Singles in America study, I ask men and women a lot of questions. And as it turns out, men uh, are much more likely to fall in love at first sight uh, because they're so um, visual. Um, uh, men uh, fall in love more often uh, than women do during the course of their lives. Uh, when a man does fall in love, he is quicker to want to introduce his new partner to friends and family. He, he wants to move in together uh, sooner. Uh, men tend to have more intimate conversations with their wives than women do with their husbands because women have their intimate conversations with their girlfriends. And men are two and a half times more likely to kill themselves when a relationship is over. So uh, men are just as romantic as women. In fact, I think they're a little bit more romantic. Women are I would the picky agree. six. They've had to be the picky six for mi- millions of years. You know, women have nine months of pregnancy. It's a, it's dangerous to give birth in many cultures, even now. And women spend more of their time in every culture in the world raising children under the age of four. So they've got a larger um, uh, 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 parenting load in the very beginning of a relationship, uh, 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 of, a, of a of a of a parental partnership, and. Uh, and they're going to be a little pickier. Men are, the, men are more romantic. I want to just uh, bring up a study that came across my desk this morning, in fact. It um, was done at Harvard. It's called the Harvard Grant Study. It began um, in 1938 through 1940. So it's the longest longitudinal, 
longitudinal study that it has been done. It is only with men. Um, a Harvard psychologist, George Valiant, ran the study from 1972 through 2004, and he wrote a book on what what it reported. And it basically reported the foundations for happiness, uh, optimal well-being, um, and what these men went through through the course of their lives. Many of them were alive well into their 90s. And um, it comes to the end of the day that love, having good love, is what was the fuel for these men in the study? Yeah, I, I'm not at all surprised. Uh, um, you know, um, a, a good relationship, uh, you know, constant sex, uh, regular sex with your partner is very good for you, not just for um, your relationship together, but uh, it, it's good for cortisol levels. Uh, um, it, it, it's good for your skin. It's good for your eyes. It's good for your heart. Um, it's good for your blood pressure, it's good for your heart, et cetera. So, um, you know, if you're in a good relationship, you're going to most likely be having regular sex with the person. Also, if you're in a good relationship, somebody's going to be saying nice things to you all the time. And we've found that when you hear nice things, um, actually cortisol goes down, the immune system is boosted, um, and, and you, you, it boosts your optimism and your energy. So, Bottom line is uh, a good relation, and of course, sleeping in somebody's arms is going to trigger the oxytocin system, uh, uh, which calms you, soothes you, and is good for your health. Also, in a good relationship, women tend to sort of be the, um, you know, the people who are running the relationship, and they often encourage men to get to the doctor sooner, uh, to pay attention to putting warm clothes on in the winter, uh, to taking care of them when they're sick, etc. So a good relationship. We were built to form pair bonds. For millions of years, we were built to form a pair bond to rear our children. Uh, and 97% of mammals do not pair up to rear their young. People do. It's a hallmark of the human animal. And, of course, along with it has come all kinds of, of goodies, all kinds of good um, physiological and emotional and psychological perquisites of staying and finding and staying in a good relationship. We are going to go to a break. We are going to take our love to the tunes. And when we return, we're going to carry on the conversation with Dr. Helen Fisher. Wait, wait, wait. Before we take that break, I want to share a little retail happiness with you from FabFitFun, a seasonal subscription service that delivers joy in a box containing full-sized beauty, fitness, and lifestyle products. Four times a year, FabFitFun will indulge you with top-notch curated products from great luxury brands like Moroccan Oil, Dermalogica, Juice Beauty, Trinaturk, Millie, and more. FabFitFun boxes cost $49.99 and always contain more than $200 worth of pampering. Quantities are limited and seasonal selections are always a sellout. This is a great way to treat yourself to the most amazing products of the season. Check out www.fabfitfun.com and use the promo code HAPPINESS at checkout to save $10 off your first box. Once again, that's fabfitfun.com. And don't forget the promo code HAPPINESS. Now here come the tunes. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? 
What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We are continuing the conversation with Dr. Helen E. Fisher. She is the Chief Scientific Advisor at Match.com. She is a biological anthropologist and researcher who has written many, many books on human sexuality, monogamy, adultery, divorce, romantic love, on and on and on. Helen, prior to the break, we were talking about the differences between the genders um, in love. Let's talk a little bit about the opposite side of love love, which would perhaps be breakups and infidelity. Right. Well, I've certainly looked at both of them. Um, um, breakups are a real tragedy. I, I, I and my colleagues have now put um, 15 people who had just been dumped into a brain scanner, and the brain regions that are active when you've been dumped, it's amazing people can cope because... What happens, the brain region linked with intense romantic love becomes active. You still are madly in love with this. In fact, you're even more in love with them because when you can't get what you want, that dopamine system just tries harder. So you're madly in love with this person. Brain regions linked with feelings of deep attachment uh, become activated uh, and remain activated when you've been rejected in love. Three brain regions linked with uh, craving and um, addiction become activated. And a brain region linked with physical pain and the distress that goes along with physical pain. So I'm not surprised that some people go over the edge and they stalk or they slip into clinical depression and some people even kill themselves or kill somebody else. It's a real brain storm when you've been rejected in love. The only thing that we really found is is uh, two 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 positive things is one part of the brain becomes active um, that is associated with trying to figure out what went wrong, assessing your gains and your losses. The brain is really ready to try and figure out it's predisposed really to try and figure out what went wrong. And also we found an activity in the brain region linked with attachment. And the farther you get away from that moment that you got dumped, the less activity there is in this brain region linked with attachment. So we really have proven that time heals. But you've got to get through those early stages. And, boy, it's hard to do. Wow. That's, I mean, it just, just your description of it sounds painful. And my own experience in working with clients, I do hear time after time when you ask somebody why they went out from uh, sobriety, you know, why they started using again their substance, they will usually, usually say it's because of a breakup. 
Oh, isn't that interesting? And what they may be doing is, well, they're doing psychological things like trying to calm themselves and and uh, try and replace this, what they've lost. But in terms of the brain, they may well be trying to stimulate the same brain system that was stimulated by uh, the person who, who abandoned them. I don't know. Nobody really knows. But there's no question about it that we've proven that when you have been rejected in love, major brain regions linked with profound addiction, um, all of the addictions, uh, not only substance addictions like heroin and cocaine and amphetamines and and um, alcohol and cigarettes, but also the behavioral addictions, food addictions, uh, um, gambling addiction, and sex addiction, uh, they are all activated by this basic brain uh, circuit, and this same brain circuit becomes activated when you become rejected in love. As a matter of fact, I think that romantic love is what I would call a natural addiction, that it evolved millions of years ago uh, for various uh, evolutionary reasons, and that all of these modern addictions are just hijacking this ancient system for wanting. Mm. Uh, I want to talk for a moment about cheating. Is it true that cheaters never change? Cheaters never quit. I think cheaters um, can grow up. I think, uh, um, uh, I mean, some people are, are, are more predisposed to cheating. We know some of the genes that are, that are linked with um, uh, stability in a, in a pair bond and that can, that can lead to instability in a pair bond. We know some of the brain uh, uh, circuits that, uh, I mean, for example, these three brain systems, uh, for the sex drive, romantic love, and feelings of attachment, they're not always well-connected. I mean, you can lie in bed and feel deep attachment for one person, and then the brain can swing into feelings of wild romantic love for somebody else or swing into feelings of the sex drive for somebody that they barely know. So there's a committee meeting that's constantly going on in the head, and and you can swing from one feeling to another. That doesn't lead to great stability. So um, mankind has, of course, evolved all kinds of uh, 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 social rules for uh, uh, for uh, to, to stop uh, people from cheating, and some people follow them, and some people don't. But we do know some of the some of some of the reasons that some people are predisposed to this. But you know what? If you're giving up drinking, you can say no to alcohol. You can be predisposed to alcoholism and give up drinking. You can predis- be predisposed to eating too much and just stop the the overindulgence of food. And in the same way. Uh, you can pre- pre- be predisposed to uh, to some um, you know some form of of adultery and 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 choose not to do it. So it certainly is uh, possible to not do it. And we know so much more about the brain from the standpoint of being able to change it from neuroplasticity, from a plastic point of view. We can exactly right. change ourselves. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Question. And I and, and back to your original question, I that I, uh, I forgot to answer. Um, I, I do think that, that people who are chronic cheaters uh, can stop cheating. And I think that happens when they finally meet somebody who thrills them so much and they have so much to lose and so much to gain and so they so adore this person that they just choose not to do it. They may have grown out of it. They may have, you know, uh, it may have been something when they were young um, or they were very faithful when they were young, and suddenly they're middle-aged, and their partner has died or deserted them. And they, can, I think, people can have periods of, 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 of cheating, and then find the right situation for themselves, so that they, so that it just doesn't make any sense to them. Um, 
And and one final question, because we are actually winding down uh, with time here. Uh, I want to talk about the state of love for the future, because there's there's so much that has um, evolved over over the years. And uh, you talked about this in, in a TED talk that you did several years back about the use of antidepressants and how they actually can suppress not only the sex drive, but our ability to perform, to climax, to um, to want to engage even with others. How does this affect the long-term uh, role of love in our lives? Right. I am I, very, thanks for asking this, Lisa. It's, it's very important to me. You know, um, SSRIs, uh, very antidepressants that drive up the, the uh, serotonin system. The older ones are Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, the newer ones are uh, have some norepinephrine in them, but they drive up the serotonin system. And as you drive up the serotonin system, you are blunting or jeopardizing the dopamine system. And the dopamine system is linked with feelings of romantic love. And I get an email once a week from somebody who says, my wife we were, and I were very happily wedded, and they put her on one of these SSRIs maybe six months ago, and <clears throat> she's come to me now and says, I don't feel anything for you. I want a divorce. So we're seeing more and more of that. I just want to see if I can end with something on happiness. Um, you know, we have stumbled on what goes on in the brain when you are happily in love. Psychologists will add all kinds of psychological things, ecological things, et cetera. But this is what goes on in the brain. And it's just trying to supplement what people know. Three brain regions become active when you are in a long-term happy relationship. One of them is linked with empathy, having empathy for your partner. The second is controlling your own emotions. And the third is something that we call positive illusions, the simple ability to, but not easy always, the simple ability to overlook what you don't like about this person and focus on what you do. So if I had to give one thing to say to various people, try and get off those SSRIs, try and get off antidepressants unless you really need them, and go do novel things together that drives up the dopamine system in the brain. Get lots of hugs and kisses that drives up the oxytocin system, makes you feel feelings of attachment. Have good sex with that person and, and, and do, practice some positive illusions. Try to overlook what you don't like and focus on what you do. Oh, I love that positive illusions. That's that is yeah. a that is great, and, and really it, it, it brings to mind this concept that Carl Rogers made very popular in this. I think it was the '60s, the early '60s or late '50s, of unconditional positive regard, loving that person, you know, accepting that person for who she, he or she is simply because you care. Right. It can it can even be simpler than that. You know, I, I went for many years with a guy who was very slow. He walked slowly, he talked slowly, he fussed slowly, he did everything slowly. Drove me crazy. But I would say to myself, you know, Helen, he he's walking slowly right now, but when we go into a museum, he looks very carefully at those paintings. He sees all kinds of things that I wouldn't have seen. When we go to the theater, he sees all the nuances of what this person said and that person said, and I, I, I can overlook the slowness because I get from that slowness all these beautiful extras. So you've got to find a way into really believing <laughs> that you love the things that are good about the person and that they overshadow what, what, what annoys you. One last question. Love around the world, are there differences or is love just simply love? Love is love. People will express it very differently. We've gone to uh, China and we've, we put people in brain scanners, uh, lead author Mona, Mona Zhu, 
And um, it's exactly the same brain. This is the brain system like the fear system or the anger system. These evolved millions of years ago. It doesn't matter if you're from China uh, or, or South Africa or um, Alaska. It's, a, it's the same brain system. And all you have to do is look at world poetry. It's, they say the same things all over the world. You know, send me an email. <laughs> Write, call, tell me that you love me. I love that. Love is just simply love. And I, I throw out there that love is really a verb, you know? I, oh, that's that a wonderful is, way to think of it. It is a verb. You bet it's a verb. Yeah, it's, it's, in, it's, in, the, it's in the doing, it's in the being, it's in the action. And it does require attention, you know? Like in order to get the love that we believe that we want, we need, we're entitled to, we desire, it does require a little focus. And if we focus our attention in that direction, there we will find ourselves. And uh, you asked about the future. I'm very optimistic about the future because I think more and more singles are really realizing that. In this Singles in America study with Match.com, we asked them, most over uh, over 80% think that they can make a long-term relationship that lasts forever. And I think they've finally come to realize that this does take work. When you ask them what they're looking for, they want somebody who respects them, somebody who they can confide in, somebody they can trust, but also somebody who spends time with them and somebody who makes them laugh. They're, we are turning inward. We used to marry to please God or or extended family or the community. Now we're making relationships to please ourselves. We're taking a long time to make them. I call it slow love. Uh, we want to get to know the person very well before we tie the knot. But when we do, we're working harder on our relationships than we have at any time in human in human history. And we're seeing more happy marriages on, on Match.com. I mean, with Match.com, we asked married people, not on Match.com, of course. We asked um, a thousand married people, would you remarry the person you're currently married to? And 81% said yes. And I think that's because these days bad marriages can end because women are economically more powerful. They don't have to get stuck in a bad marriage. Same with men. Uh, we're free to leave a bad marriage to make a better one. And I think that great many people are really dedicated to, <clears throat> excuse me, to doing that. In fact, I would say that if there was ever a time in human history when we have the opportunity to make really good relationships, that time is now. Dr. Helen Fisher, thank you for sharing with us a very positive outlook on the state of love around the world. To learn more about Dr. Helen Fisher, please visit HelenFisher.com on Facebook, Helen Fisher, Ph.D., with a hyphen between the words. And on Twitter, she is at Dr. Helen Fisher. Before we take off for that break, I want to mention the power of a beautiful smile. We all know that happiness is contagious, and so is a dazzling grin. And that's why I'm giving my mouth a dental tune-up with Smile Direct Club invisible aligners that are gently straightening and brightening my pearly whites at an affordable price. Smile Direct Club costs 60% less than other invisible aligners or braces. I'm enjoying this easy process that's progressively improving my smile as I work, play, and sleep. Each month, I receive a new set of custom-crafted aligners delivered directly to my front door. No office visits, no wires, no brackets. Listen up. You can get started at home today with an impression kit for $95, but wait. Listeners of Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio receive a special promotion of 50% off this evaluation cost. And you can even save more because dental insurance plans reimburse customers for a portion of the cost of invisible aligners. And Smile Direct Club also accepts FSAs. 
Remember, listeners of this show will receive 50% off an in-home impression kit that normally sells for $95, and that's 100% covered by their smile guarantee. So if aligners aren't a good fit for you, you get your money back. Smile Direct Club's mission is straight to the point, making it clear and convenient to transform your smile no matter where you live. Your new smile is waiting at SmileDirectClub.com, and be sure to use my unique promo code of HAPPINESS at checkout. This offer is not available in North Carolina. Once again, that's SmileDirectClub.com, and don't forget to use the promo code HAPPINESS to save 50% off your in-home impression kit today. Here comes the break. We'll be right back, and that's a promise. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. And my next guest is Nina Hartley. She is an adult film actress and director, sex educator, sex-positive feminist, and author. Nina is the ultimate MILF. And for those of you who do not know what that means, I urge you to Google it because we are staying clean here today on Harvesting Happiness. She's a gal who was hot back in the 1970s and is still smoking hot today and just as oversexed. Since she has gone on to feature in over 650 first-run adult films and has become one of the most enduring and recognizable performers in the industry. She has won the most uh, AVN awards of any star in history and was the first starlet to cross over to quote-unquote real acting with a part in the film Boogie Nights. Boy, Nina, we are dating ourselves with that one. (laughs) In 2006... Huh? We certainly are. We certainly are. Oh, my. In 2006, she published her first book, Nina Hartley's Guide to Total Sex. Hartley serves on the board of directors of the Woodhull Sexual Freedom Alliance, which is an organization whose mission is to affirm sexual freedom as a fundamental human right. Welcome, Nina. Thanks for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's taken us a long time, but we are here, and I am eager to find out from you, as a sex educator, what do most people crave when it comes to sex? 
I think most people crave acceptance and the and to do, and to feel comfortable within their own skins. Um, mm. And two very difficult things to find. Certainly, the being comfortable in your own skin is a personal journey that everyone needs to undertake on their own. And as much help and support as we can get from other people in that in that process, ultimately becoming comfortable in my skin is my job. Therapy, journaling, whatever you got to do, you do it. And until I can be comfortable by myself in a room with a mirror and and good lighting. Um, and it, and, that, and once, <laughs> once we start once we start from a a foundation of I feel comfortable in my skin then many more things are possible, and we free up a lot of psychic energy. I couldn't agree with you more, and I think it's important for some of our listeners to know of your earlier background besides the film industry, that you worked in healthcare. I mean, you're a nurse by your formal education. Yes. Is that correct? I, I do. I have a Bachelor of Science degree in nursing. I was going to be a midwife, another body-based um, activity. Um, and I tell people always that in our culture, sexuality is sick, and sick people need a nurse's care. And a nurse's job is to role model, to um, advocate, and to educate. And so uh, sexual ignorance leads to real suffering. Sexual ignorance leads to real pain, real isolation, real damage. And um, my, my gig is sex. Um, if it was something else, I would be a, a therapist. I'd be some other kind of healer. But sexuality is really near and dear to my heart. And what I love about what you've just shared is about stepping into our own skin, being at home within ourselves, that when we talk about sex, we're not really talking about the physical release. While that is lovely and wonderful and fun and very, very satisfying, I think when we talk about the the heart of our sexuality, it is what you talk about, you know, feeling understood, heard, communicated, connected, um, at home in, in, in one's body. Yes. The, um, you know, only our authentic selves can be happy. And as long as we are running from ourselves, harming our body, using sex to harm self or others, we are not at home in our body. We are still prey to the to our upbringings, to our history, to our experiences. And so until we can heal the hurts of our body in our body, we're always going to be vulnerable to isolation, loneliness, and um being uh, uh, misused by others. I have. And you, <laughs> sorry? I have discovered. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 and I have as well. And I think what's interesting about what you're saying is that to, um, to be isolated and lonely is very different from being alone and being comfortable with being alone, whether it's in one's yes. skin or with oneself, even sexually. Yes, absolutely. You know, nobody else can make us happy. We can only be happy. We can only make ourselves happy. And again, until we come up with self-acceptance, until we come up with whatever we have to do to be able to calmly be with ourselves without having to be drunk, without having to be high, without having to constantly distract ourselves with people, things, relationships, bright, new, shiny, we will be stuck in a cycle of um, unhappiness. I mean, it, it just is it, inevitable. Agreed. Um, what do you find are some of the most common cravings that never get fulfilled, the longings that we never uh, tap into? I think the, long, the, the, the cravings we never get 
fulfilled um, unless we were exceptionally well-parented. It's a claim for total, unconditional love and acceptance, just as we are in this very moment. And if we were not able to get that from our caregivers as children, we are left trying to make it work as adults, um, which is very, very difficult. So, you know, that translates to, oh, I wish I had someone to love me. Oh, I wish I had a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Oh, I wish I looked a different way. Or I wish I... And they, and they fill in the blank. Um, so people people don't understand where their cravings come from because it comes from a place before words. It comes from a place before we understood what, what was happening to us. And so we are constantly wondering, you know, why can't I figure this out? I'm smart. Why can't I be happy? Because somewhere deep in the back of your brain, you don't think that you're okay because that's not the message you got. Physically, I mean, I can tell you all day, you're so great, you're so great, but if you don't believe it, I'm just blowing air out my butt. So yeah. until we can believe it in our bones, in our skin, it was just empty words. And so that is the thing that the number one craving is for love and acceptance. And it really goes down to a, a very primal and visceral level of yeah. Yeah. nurturing, primal. you know, feeling as though that we are nurtured, cared for, and, and accepted. And valuable and desired and important to somebody. And the most important thing is an infant needs is a caregiver who thinks that that baby is the most important and best baby in the whole world. And um, because that's all the babies need, and most babies don't get it for whatever reason. Um, most parents don't mean to not give that to their children. Most parents would like to and don't know how themselves. So we have the blind leading the blind often. And when it comes to our sexuality and the expression of what makes us tick in this way, the, there is nothing more of a turn-on than being desired. I don't know of anybody Absolutely. who's not turned on by somebody else wanting them. Yes, Correct. Because that is the validation, and it's, you know, the, the pheromones in the air, the chemical attraction, or the electrical zing between people, um, and to have that reciprocated is the most delightful feeling in the world. One of the most painful feelings in the world is desiring somebody who doesn't desire you back. And so, again, it comes down to our relationship with, our, with ourselves. And the secret to desire not leading to unhappiness, I come from a Buddhist background where, you know, desire equals suffering. And it's not the desire so much that will lead to suffering, but it is attaching an outcome to the, the desire. So I have taught myself over many painful years that I can desire somebody and be perfectly happy if I never get to be with them sexually. Because the desire is what's making me happy. I look at a person and go, oh, my God, they're so attractive. I think they're hot. And that gives me a little, you know, tickly thrill in my tummy, and I'm good. I don't have to try to follow through. I don't have to try to make it real. Because most of the time they're not available. They're mated. They don't, they're not into what we're into. They're not geographically nearby. And so many people, they, they want a thing, they want a person, and they're so unhappy, they can't have that person. So they're using desire to punish themselves and to continue causing themselves pain and distress. And once I discovered that desire, as in all fields, is my responsibility and my experience. So if I'm taking responsibility for my experience 100% of the time, 
that I can desire whatever I want, not have to have it, and the desire still can make me happy. So you know, how do you think happiness? I, I can be happy with the thought of the ice cream. I can be happy with the thought of the partner and not have to go through the messiness of trying to actually make it real when reality, of course, is crashing in on your good time. Uh, so uh, that, that was a trick I learned and very happy to do so. This is a very important um, discovery tip key to uh, sustainable well-being and happiness, I think, because just like um, the negative emotions that we experience, sadness, grief, loss, depression, etc., those are constructs of the waves that come in and out of our, our mind and our consciousness. And what I hear you saying about desire, it is the flip side of the coin, that when we can become sort of the witness to what it is we want or what it is we think we desire and have no expectation, we can just sort of marinate and stew in the juices of that positive feeling without having to, having the need to act upon it. Exactly. And that's a very Buddhist concept. Um, yes, uh, it is. Uh, whoopsie. That's a very Buddhist concept, the idea of non-attachment, um, non-attainment of, of, the, of the desire. Um, you know, grief, all feeling states, are transient. They act on a bell curve. And so when we can fully experience our feelings, then they, they go. I mean, my father died a few years back, and I was fully able to grieve that very night. I was alone with his body, and I just gave myself over to all the weeping and wailing that one would do when one loses a beloved parent, and I haven't had to cry since because I didn't have I didn't have to deny any part of my grief. I could experience it all, and once you once the body experiences a thing, it has it. It doesn't have to do anything with it anymore. And when we don't let ourselves feel fully anger, grief, whatever, pick a feeling, um, then it sticks around until we can process it. And so we process our feelings through the body. That's what they call feelings and not thoughts. We feel them. And so, again, when you can be in your body and fully feeling what it is you're feeling, then you can um, have the full experience and let it go. And it doesn't, it doesn't linger. Nina, we are going to need to jump to a break. And when we return, we are going to carry on the conversation about desire, about sexuality, about craving. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. And other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life 
is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We are talking with Nina Hartley about desire, cravings, our sexuality, and how they are a reflection of actually where we are in consciousness. So, Nina, before the break, we were talking about desire and being able to really um, uh, embrace the sense and feeling of desire without necessarily having to act on it. Can you talk a little bit about how you recommend people to cultivate a healthy sexual practice and expression of desire? Um, I first would recommend starting with a mindfulness practice. Um, any any technique, yoga, meditation, prayer that helps us helps us remain still within our bodies without abandoning ourselves, so we can take a look at what's going on. Uh, most of us are so so eager to get away from quote unquote bad feelings or quote unquote negative feelings that we don't stay put long enough to look at what's going on here. What do I actually need? Can I give it to myself? And so um, often our painful experiences in life end up encouraging us to look for solutions or coping mechanisms. Again, therapy, prayer, meditation, um, yoga, massage, exercise, those kinds of things. But my, I'm, always going to, I'm always going to come back to the idea of um, learning how to be in our bodies, in them, and so sometimes our bodies are not going to be happy. We're going to be grieving. We're going to be angry. And sometimes our bodies are going to be very happy, and we want to be there too. Um, so any, any modality, any therapy, any spiritual practice that just helps us calm down, slow down, be here is encouraged. And one of the reasons I like sex practice so much for this is because learning how to recalibrate our, our relationship to pleasure is in and of itself transformative because when we use our body to confront the lessons our bodies have absorbed from our culture and seek consciously to transform that lesson, it is, it is, um, it's mind-blowing. It's just crazy how it works, how well it works. And what's beautiful about what you describe is it is the expression of our sexuality in of itself becomes a very mindful practice. Absolutely. That when we yeah, I was saying, when we come from this place, it becomes spot-on mindful. Exactly. So, you know, when I, when I talk about this, I say um, that, you know, the, the, the experience of pleasure is both the car and the road. It, it is the carrot and the stick. It is the engine and the gas. It is the alpha and the omega. And I'm not talking about just mindlessly trying to get more greedy pleasure, but mindfully experiencing the pleasure that our body can um, facilitate. And when we do it mindfully, paying attention to how it feels to feel this good and what emotions is it coming up in me and what, am, what, is it, what memories are being revealed and how we self-talk to, our, to ourselves when doing mindful pleasure is 
how we were taught to feel about our bodies. Because even if we don't remember words from our parents, this is good, this is bad, the resistance in our bodies to experiencing consensual, safe pleasure alone in a room tells us everything we need to know about our own history. We are often told, and many of us have this programming from when we are young, that we should fight our cravings. How do you find this affects us when it comes to our sexuality, our relationships? You know, this is really a big deal. It's a big deal, and I find it very damaging. Um, Again, the idea of fighting our cravings comes from the Abrahamic concept in the West of um, the body being based and only spiritual pursuits being so-called pure or godly. And I'm not a God believer, but, okay, but God gave us these, this capacity for pleasure. And they say, yes, it's only for within marriage. But we forget that we are all, before we are human, we're animals. We're human animals. And desire is messy. Desire is, is, um, can be chaotic. It can be anarchic. And so the people fear pleasure and they fear giving in to their craving because they think, oh my God, if I say yes once, I'll never stop. I'll, I'll, I'll want to be with all the boys or all the girls and and I will never get any work done. And I'll just, I'll just go crazy with it. And that is a fear that's been put into people because sexual pleasure, as you know, is an altered state of consciousness. And it can be very, very invigorating and very scary. And so many people are frightened and they want to not be too worked up over things. So when we fight our cravings, for me, it's not that it's fighting my cravings. It's like, how may I, how can I acknowledge them, accept them, and then find safe ways to express the ones that are in keeping with my value system. I have plenty of cravings I do not actually try to make real because they don't fit with my, with my values, but they can live in my mind. And then the difference between a thought and an action. I, I yeah. permit myself to think anything I want. I do not permit myself to do anything I want, but I permit myself to think anything I want. And thought is not action. So as long as my actions are in keeping with keeping myself and everyone else around me safe and secure, then I don't worry about my cravings. I just make sure that I never act them out non-consensually. You say something very, very important about in keeping with your values or in keeping within one's values. I think this is, uh, comes down to integrity. It comes down to operating earnestly in addition to honestly. You know, earnest is, is something very, very different. You know, it's with a sincerity and integrity level that maybe goes a little bit uh, further than just truth-telling. Yes. You know, my, 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 values, my values say that I can engage in any kind of consensual activity I want with other adults, the operative word being consensual. So I make sure that if I want to do behavior A, that I will gather around me people who either are interested in behavior A, like it already, or want, I can teach you more about it. And so I, I, don't do, I don't do behavior A with people who hate behavior A because why would I bother? Why would we do that at all? And as I've gotten better at this, um, I tell people I no longer have, quote, unquote, bad sex. I rarely have awkward or embarrassing sexual moments anymore where I used to have them all the time, before I was clear about my desires, before I was clear about my own responsibility, before I was clear about setting boundaries and negotiating properly. I had all kinds of sexual 
embarrassment, awkwardness, it hurts feelings, missed messages, miscommunication, what's wrong with me. And I don't have that anymore because sex behavior can be a part of your spiritual practice. Um, and uh, anybody who believes in, you know, faithful monogamy after marriage would understand this. For those people, the expression of the sexuality is sanctified by marriage under God. And so within that, within the safety of the sanctified relationship, they can have whatever behavior they wish because it is expressing their belief system. Um, anybody can do that. Anybody who is good at ethical non-monogamy and non-ethical non-monogamy. You can have ethical monogamy and they can have lying and cheating. So, Wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Value system is based practice. If you so care to do that. How uh, let's, let, let me just back up for one second and talk about when cravings go too far. And how does one regulate one's cravings? Is it simply a matter of willpower or is there something else that needs to happen in order to um, keep oneself in check? Well, for me, I don't find, for me, the, the problem or the issue is never cravings. It is acting on them. So I crave whatever I want. Now, if the craving is overtaking my thought process, it is filling my waking hour. If I'm feeling in a burning desire in my body and it's driving me crazy, then it is never, um, going back to Buddhism, it's never about the object, it's about the process. So in, you know, craving, insert sex, drugs, food, money, status, objects, it's the sensation of craving, the physical feeling in your body, the emotional state that you are in when you are in the grip of a craving that feels out of control. So then we have to step back, breathe, meditate, pray, Calm down, go to a small room, hit yourself and get in a padded, in a padded wall until it goes away. <laughs> but the cravings, cravings, it, it feels like, oh, I must act on this. But my actions are my, under my control. So what excuse am I giving to myself for, quote, unquote, giving into the craving again and again and again? What am I telling myself that, okay, I can do it this time, even when I hate myself after? Because there's a process going on. It's never about the object or the, the desired or craved object slash behavior it's always about the internal process what is it really saying to you about your inner, internal life and when the craving becomes an addiction or is unable to be harnessed whether it's a sexual of a sexual nature or otherwise another substance um then the work the work to be done in, in my observation because i work with addiction all the time becomes on a soul level it's not about Absolutely. what one becomes addicted to Absolutely. Addiction is always about the process, not about the, not about the um, object slash desire slash substance. Um, all of our emotional states are internal to us, and they are under our, um, if the emotions are under our control, our behavior is under our control, and our response to the painful emotion is certainly under our control if we care to. But often, it's so, when, we, when we feel out of control of our cravings or addictions, un unlocking and healing the underlying pain of them is so difficult for most people that they often have to, quote, unquote, hit bottom before they'll even look. They have to get very close to the edge. They have to lose their family, lose their relationship, lose their status, lose something important to them before they'll stop and go, okay, I guess I'd better deal with this broken leg. 
Um, and I had my, my hitting bottom with my emotional problems um, was, were higher than other people. I was never homeless, but I did hit bottom about, oh, my gosh, 15, 16 years ago, oh, 20 years ago, when I realized how my unexamined uh, cravings for acceptance or cravings for um, my partner to be different were undermining my ability to live. And it was very embarrassing. It's, it's very humiliating to admit that, you know, you're out of control and that you need, that you need help with handling this. Um, for me, therapy was a wonderful tool. Other people use other, other methods. But our internal environment and our internal dialogue is ours. And I cannot say, you're making me unhappy. I can say, wow, your behavior is revealing to me things I did not know were inside of me. Thank you so much. But I yes. can say, you stop that so I can feel better. Ah, the gifts. The gifts of love, relationship, cravings, desire, sexuality. We are out of time, and I want to thank Nina Hartley for being with us. To learn more, please visit www.nina.com and on Twitter with the handle at NinaLand. Here are a couple of thoughts before we part. Happiness yes. is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.